Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower King, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I am Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. And you can buy merch at store.twoguysdarktowercane.com. In this episode, we'll cover The Dead Zone, chapters 24 through 28, and our final thoughts on the book. Let's start the show! In hiding after the tragedy at the restaurant, Johnny Smith wonders what he should do with the knowledge he has about Greg Stilson. At first, he thinks he has time, but then gets some bad news about his health. Johnny realizes he must take action. But what action to take? And what will happen to Stilson? What is Johnny's fate? Funny you should mention fate, Sean. Because we have repeatedly talked about Johnny as a man outside of time. Yes. But I think that this final section of the book really changes that perspective. I think Johnny is a man on borrowed time. Mm-hmm. It looks like his most recent health news is that that debt has come due. Yes, very much so. The way that Johnny takes the news is sort of a stunner to the doctor who tells him this. It's a stunner to the doctor because the doctor's like, ah, I'm never good at telling really bad news to people. and I don't know how they're going to take it. And Johnny's like, okay, thanks for letting me know how much time exactly. Yeah, I'm not going to do any more treatment. I'll talk to you later. Bye. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. that's it. Because I think Johnny has known all along that he has gotten a reprieve that he probably didn't deserve or wasn't necessarily owed and he was going to have to pay somebody back. And he says that at one point, he says, I think this is in the letter to Sarah. He says, perhaps I was meant to die in that car crash or even earlier that day on the runaround. And I believe that when I finish what I have to finish, the scales will come completely back into balance again. Mm -hmm. And this idea that by not dying when he thought he would die, the universe is out of whack. Yeah. And only by dying, in fact, will things get back to normal. It also makes you wonder, like, which scales is he talking about? There Mm. are the scales about his life or his lifetime and the borrowed time, the coma and the time he had after the coma. But there's also the scales of, like, say, Greg Stilson's political career. And I think if you look at this whole story from a certain lens, like, say, the lens that would most align with Johnny's mother's perspective, Mm. it would be that. He's doing God's work by taking Stilson off the table. God works in mysterious ways. So what does he do? He takes Johnny out of his life, puts him through this horrendous experience of awful car crash, four years of coma, a year of recovery, and a slow degrading health leading back to ultimately a very early death. But all of that is in service of being around long enough and having this superpower to take a really bad player off the table. Yes. And you haven't even mentioned all the personal stuff, too. Yeah. Losing his girlfriend, his mother dying, losing his job, not having all that. 
the way you put it with like, oh, is this what Johnny's mom meant when God set it up this way? And Johnny doesn't want to believe that, right? He's very much mm-hmm. like, why would God do such a thing? If he's so worried about Greg Stilson, why didn't he take care of him himself a long time ago? Why was he ever born? And this is the constant question of why does God do bad things if, if God exists and why does evil exist? And so Johnny's having a hard time rationalizing that. And I think he comes to the point where he probably doesn't believe in God or doesn't believe God works in those ways. Mm-hmm. And so maybe there's another theme to the story, and we'll talk a little bit about that later. But still, this all plays into someone like King, who has set up these balances before, maybe like he did in the book previous to this, The Stand, right? Yeah. I'm going to set up good and evil, and here's the good guys in Boulder, and here's the bad guys in Las Vegas, and there must be a price paid in order to defeat evil. And that means four guys walking to Las Vegas and and hoping that they can- Four guys and a dog. Oh, well, I forgot the dog, yes. And hoping that they can do do things right. So this is not new territory for King, but I think he comes to it in a very personal way here with Johnny and has Johnny sort of push back against it, much in the same way that characters in that book didn't always believe. Like, oh, what, what, what are we talking about here? Good and evil? There's plenty of doubters in that. Um, I think Johnny's a little bit understands the concept, but isn't quite buying into it. And just as Johnny is reaching that the very end of this borrowed time, he gets the sensation of returning to that point mm. that the time split. He looked over his shoulder and there was the corridor he had emerged from so long ago. He had come out of that corridor and into this bright placental place. Only then his mother had been alive and his father had been there, calling him by name until he broke through to them. Now it was only time to go back. Now it was right to go back. Mm -hmm. So he is accepting this. He's accepting his fate, and he's at peace. And I think a large part of that is that his own suffering is ending, but he also feels like he's accomplished whatever he was held around for to accomplish. Whether it was God doing it, or fate doing it, or Ka. However you want to think about it, Johnny needed to be around to stop Stilson. This was the not such a fun way to go about doing that for Johnny, but mission accomplished. Yes. And so Johnny will transition to like why Johnny does what he has to do if he if he doesn't believe in God, if he thinks there must be a reason to do this. He sort of lays it out like he spends that time when he's literally off in the desert. He goes mm-hmm. off to think about this out in the desert. And is he in Arizona, I think, or Nevada? And he's writing these scripts of what's going on. How do I deal with this? He's putting his thoughts on paper, as you would expect someone who is a teacher and a writer to do. And he asks these three questions about morality. How drastic are the measures that need to be taken? Can I just call up the cops and say, hey, this guy's a bad guy? Or do I have to go further than that? Could I have changed the outcome of whatever could have happened? And what would the results of either action have been to me? And these questions are no longer hypothetical. So we've seen him ask hypothetical questions about Hitler. We've talked about this a couple of times. What would you do? What would you do? And people always have an answer, but it's not real to them. It's no longer hypothetical for Johnny. He's also been put through this test a couple different times now, including with the restaurant. And looking back on that, he's like, I could have done more. Yeah. I could have crashed into the restaurant and and made sure that they couldn't have a party there. I could have screamed at people to not go in and made an ass of myself. And so 
I realized that there's always more I can do. And so what action can I take when it comes to Stilson? And he very precisely puts it out as we're reading it. It makes sense to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You, you have to think about assassination because that's the only way you can potentially stop this guy. I think if you're looking at those books after the fact and you realize like there's a guy with all these newspaper clippings inside binders and then scrawling notes about how, why I'm going to kill this backbench congressman might look a little crazy. Might a little, (laughs) but you don't know what Johnny knows. I mean, this is the stuff of John Doe in seven. (laughs) I wanted to throw this out to you just as a quick tangent. Is Johnny a reliable narrator? I think that if this book were written in the first person, I would have a lot more concerns about that. But the way it's written and all of the things that happen that prove Johnny right, his physical therapist's house burning down, his doctor finding his mother that he's been separated from, the incident with the ring, the incident with the restaurant, we know that his powers are real, at least as they're presented in the book. I think the one thing, the one thing that could potentially throw us is that we don't actually see the outcome of what Stilson does. All those other things are really specific. Mm -hmm. The ring is in this pocket of the suitcase that's up in your attic. The restaurant called such and such is going to be hit by lightning tonight and kids are going to die. But his vision of Stilson, whether it's because it's so far in the future and many things could change or it's just not clear and it's, you know, if it's the destruction of the world, you can't really see like an omniscient, like, oh, I'm above the earth and I see these mushroom clouds or whatever. We don't actually see all that. So I think that that's the one thing of we are relying on Johnny's interpretation of his vision when it comes to Stilson. And to that event, it's a little more subjective. Like you could think as somebody of Johnny's political leanings that somebody like Stilson is going to be mean the end of the world. That doesn't mean the world is going to end. So that'd be another potential way of looking at it. So I think it's an interesting fact that, that I hadn't thought of when I was reading this book, but it did sort of get my, my mind working. I think you're right. Um, I, I think it's worth asking that question and and wondering about Johnny being a, a, a reliable narrator isn't really the right way to ask the question because he is, as you say, it's not from his perspective. This is a, a third person all the way through, except for the epistolary nature of a few letters here and there. So I think that is enough evidence, if you will, to, to, to support what you just said, that all these things that happened in the book actually happened. And therefore, Johnny has powers, and therefore, all of his predictions are real and, and true. I have a headcanon theory about the vague nature of Johnny's final prediction about Stilson, and that it two things uh, make up or contribute to the vagueness. One is he has the opportunity to change it, mm-hmm. and it's important that he try to change it. And also, the future that he's looking at goes beyond the end of his life. Mm-hmm. So that's two layers of fogginess that are added to this particular vision that he's seeing. He can't see beyond the end of his life, and King doesn't state this in the text, and no, there's no uh, established fake pseudoscience <laughs> around you it, know, yeah. to explain his visions. That's my imagination. If he's successful in his endeavor, then the vision will change. 
and therefore it's it remains like this out of focus thing yeah and if he is successful he probably isn't going to live past that moment where he does influence the change enough also and that's something that he addresses in his letter in his writings and is okay with right like Mm-hmm. I have to do this. And even if it means the end of my life, the greater good has been served. I know I'm not going to get out of this alive. Whether I get killed myself or get thrown in jail, I'm not going to live for very long anyways. But what made me think of the question so late in the game, you know, like it didn't even occur to you uh, right away, is that, you know, about the reliability of the story is that look back like if you were to just look at his notebooks and you know you're thinking this guy is nuts all this is is a justification to murder somebody famous yeah and maybe nothing more and because you can't prove the negative nobody can see both outcomes or both futures so he is successful he ends greg stilson's public career and therefore he never becomes president and yada yada so what? Like, you know, that doesn't justify trying to kill the guy uh, un- unless you knew as with as much certainty as Johnny did the alternative. The one thing that Johnny's got going for him is documented records of him showing this power earlier. Yeah. Which, again, people may not believe anyways, but there's a little bit there like, oh, yeah, this is the guy who predicted X, Y and Z. So maybe he's right about this. but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, still, like you said, it's hard to prove a negative. So what do you mean? This guy's just a hardworking politician trying to be there for the uh, for his people. I'm sure he wasn't going to blow up the world. Why would he do that? Uh huh. The one thing in reading this book, Jay, is that on one hand, it seems very prescient. A lot of these, hey, populist politician who who might not be as good as he seemed coming to the forefront. I mean, that's something that King was worried about in the 70s, and I think people have been worried about up through today. We don't have to mention any names. I think the one thing that is potentially the big difference between the dead zone outcome and and today's outcome is the fact that there's a picture of Stilson holding up this young child to protect himself from a potential assassin shames Stilson enough, or not even shames Stilson enough, is enough for to turn public opinion on a dime and be like, oh my God, this guy's done. He will never work again as a politician versus today where politicians of all stripes are not shamed or cowed in any way by any action that they will take. Willing to say lies, repeat those lies. And even if they are mocked or pointed out as frauds or the emperor not wearing any clothes, that's not enough to turn public opinion, whether that's because of partisanship or the politician themselves. And that's the one thing about this, other than the psychic thing, that falls a little untrue to me. Oh, that's unrealistic that politicians would act this way. Mm-hmm. Or this would be the fate of the country based on, 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 on these actions. I think it's wonderful because like we talked about with the Castle Rock Strangler, King wraps it up nicely. Yeah, The, the Castle Rock Strangler, Johnny's able to point him out. And before there's a trial, before there's any questions of like, oh, why did the psychic finger me as the killer? There's no way that that could be. The Castle Rock Strangler Dodd has cut his throat and written a confession note. Bam, boom, we're all clean. Yep. And at the end here, Johnny has all these moral conundrums. Should I do this? Can I do this? Why should I do this? Is one life better than, you know, taking one life more important than than others? And 
the greater good. It's the, basically the trolley question put into action here. Johnny's concerned about this. I mean, he grew up in a religious household. His mom would have been like, oh my God, you know, you're committing murder potentially. And what is that going to mean for your everlasting soul? And King wraps it up so nicely because Johnny gets to do the right thing. He gets the outcome he wants. He doesn't have to murder another human being. Despite his best efforts. Well, I don't know how best his efforts were. <laughs> he was sort of flailing there, but yes, <laughs> exactly. Well, sometimes missing the uh, the target multiple times is uh, it has to do, right? Yep, yep. That's kind of the central theme of the story, isn't it? I think so. There's this line right at the end that I think, looking back on it, really summarizes everything. And that is, well, we all do what we can, and it has to be good enough. And if it isn't good enough, it has to do. And I love this concept about like one person can only do so much. But you have to do what you think is right, even if it doesn't happen. That's what you got to do, right? Like, not one person can change the world for the good in a major way, I think is a little bit of what he's trying to say. Although Johnny Smith does this, but like, you can take these incremental steps and do good where you need to. This line has this poetry to it, but I tried to make sense of it. And I don't know if I fully agree with the sentiment. Like, do what we can. Okay, fine. And it has to be good enough. Okay, well then, if you did all you could, then call that good enough. But then it goes on to say, and if it isn't good enough, it has to do. Like, so it's if it's not good enough, it's still good enough, or you have to make it good enough, or you just have to accept it as good enough. I, it seems like the sliding scale of diminishing expectations. <laughs> and I don't know that this, this sentence actually makes sense. So <laughs> therefore, I struggle to agree with it. But if I think of it more of the the poetry of it, the intent of the of this as a farewell statement of a reflection on a very hard life that Johnny's making, I can buy into it a little bit more easily. Yeah, I think the big thing for me is that you shouldn't get hung up on what you didn't do if you've tried your best and have done some good. That is the point at the beginning of this section when Chuck's father who employed Johnny to tutor his son, says, I worry about you blaming yourself for the dead instead of blessing yourself for the living, the ones you saved, the ones that were at the Chatsworth house that night. That idea is the important thing here. Like Johnny gets so worried about like all these people died and I didn't do anything about it. When in fact, he should be proud of the fact that with the limited powers he had, he did save a number of kids' lives. And that should be the focus there. So that when you're in the process of doing good, you still have to focus on what you've done because there's other outside forces that you can't control and you can only do what you can do. And if you're doing good, that's that's enough. Yeah. I guess it is good advice for Johnny to give to himself. Yeah. Like, like Johnny has done his best with his relationship with his mother. He's done his best with his romance with Sarah. He's done his best with his career as a teacher. But because of the circumstances of his life with the accident and the coma and the, all of the subsequent suffering, none of those things worked out for him. And when he did things like, like help to capture a serial killer, he lost his career. When he got into the coma, he lost the love of his life. And, and when he saved the students from the, fi the lightning strike fire, he lost like a second chance at some sort of semblance of normalcy and had to kind of just hit the road. Yep. 
this has been a really, really lousy life for Johnny. And um, I guess that's why he's saying things like, if it isn't good enough, it has to do. Yeah. But on the other hand, like he did make his mom happy before she died and promising him that he would use his power. Mm. And he did have this wonderful afternoon with Sarah where they are finally able to consummate their romance. And he was able to, while not teach high school students across New Hampshire and Maine, make a huge difference in the life of the one student he tutored and, and turn him into somebody who couldn't read, didn't enjoy reading and might have failed in school to someone who's going to be a success. And so that I think is what he's saying. Like, I need to focus on the good things there and not the bad. Yes. Maybe it's not the perfect theme for the story, but I think I liked it and I liked the way it wrapped up and it makes this a little less tragic in some ways. If you focus on the moment as opposed to five and a half years of, of really, 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 really bad shit. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Well, that wraps up the major themes in this section that we want to talk about. Let's get to some of our favorite points in Dark Tower Thinnies. There's one thing I wanted to call it as a potential thinny, and Johnny keeps getting these terrible headaches. And at one point, he describes the headache as that thudding sound in his head, like poles of destiny coming together. And I know he's just talking about like, maybe the feels like his ears are going to come crashing into each other inside <laughs> his skull or something. But the poles of destiny coming together, that also sounds like a description of the Dark Tower itself. Oh, yes. As the axis of all reality, right? I think so, yeah. I'm going to call out destiny in my quote as well. God, destiny, providence, fate, whatever you want to call it, seems to be reaching out with its steady and unarguable hand to put the scales back in balance again. And so we've got this idea of ka in many different words here, mm. along with this also this idea of the scales back in balance. Ka is a wheel. Ka is a wheel, yes. No 19s in this section. Nope. All right. This has been a fairly tame book. Do we have any yucking it ups for our final section? I found something that's a little yucky. (laughs) It's Johnny is up on the balcony awaiting his uh, opportunity to assassinate Stilson. And he gets a vision from the, the very floorboards he's sitting on. And Part of that vision is two men talking to each other, and one of them had been talking about the price of whiskey and cleaning his nose with a silver toothpick. <laughs> what? I'm simultaneously grossed out and also just puzzled. How do you clean your nose with a toothpick? Silver, whatever. Like, I wouldn't use. I'm picturing a sewing needle. Yeah. And scraping your nose with it? That's. Oh, that's terrible. No, thank you. I like how all of a sudden at the very end here, Johnny's powers now go into poltergeist from the past he's able to read. Mm. I'm not sure how this helps or what the pseudoscience case for this is like, oh, I can now see into the past, but whatever. The the silver toothpick is a misnomer if he's cleaning his nose with it. It should be a silver nose pick, obviously. Well, unless you go back and forth, nose to tooth, nose to tooth. Yeah, then it should just be like a silver head orifice pick and like, hey, throw in the ears there as well. Get some wax out of there. 
It's an ear, nose, and throat pick. <laughs> oh. Mine is in the descriptions of really on how death's door Johnny looks throughout this section. The committee that's looking into the potential Stilson assassination sort of follows the steps of what Johnny did uh, from the time he left Arizona until he attempted to assassinate Stilson. And at one point they say they call him a tall and rather haggard looking young man with graying hair and badly bloodshot eyes. And elsewhere we see from a child's perspective, how Frankenstein he looks with him dragging his leg and his eyes just like looking terrible and mommy, mommy, is that man dying? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is he dead? And I, it just got to be a little bit much for me. Yeah. But I guess King really wanted to drive that point home. Yeah. Like this guy, it's amazing that he's still walking around. He's just a cadaver. So, uh, well, Jay, we want to thank our patrons for continuing to support the show, getting access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. They have become patrons by visiting patreon.com slash two guys dark tower. Jay, why don't you tease one of our upcoming bonus podcasts? Well, I believe the next thing we're going to release is going to be our coverage of the Dead Zone movie starring Christopher Walken. That is going to be fantastic. I have not seen that movie in years. I'm looking so forward to it. Same here. We also wanted to call out a new iTunes review from W.V. Smith. I don't know if this is Winston Smith from 1984's Oceana, but W.V. Smith gave us a five-star review saying, guys, another thingy for Dr. Sleep and the Dark Tower is that the deaths of type three vampires and true knot members are very similar. You had already noted that the true knots were vamps anyways. Great show. W Smith. Thank you for that review. Uh, just a reminder, we're always interested in other dark tower thinnies that you may find in the books. And whether you do that through a iTunes review, a tweet to us or via email, we would love to hear them. Yeah. Keep those suggestions coming. And also I, think that uh wv smith is almost certainly winston smith from 1984 i mean he he's probably in charge of cleansing all of our, <laughs> our, our podcast content anyway he puts it all so, in the truth hole that's right <laughs> none of none of the things we say ever make it into the public so jay this was a little bit of a downer of a section but is there any fun stuff yeah there's some fun stuff this whole book has been really great. So, of course, there's fun stuff here. There was another description of Johnny where he was much too pale, much too thin, and there was a hideous Frankenstein scar running up out of his coat collar to just under his jaw. It was as if somebody had tried taking his head clean off at some time in the not-too-distant past, tried, and almost succeeded. Not only is this a great description of Johnny. It's also a great description of the Kurgan from Highlander. I love it. <laughs> Clancy Brown himself. That's right. National treasure, Clancy Brown. That's a great one. And as soon as you said that, I'm like, oh my God, look the picture. <laughs> we, we, we should put a picture in the show notes. I think uh, as soon as you'll see it, you're like, oh yeah, definitely. Yep. I wanted to point out that in his letter to Johnny, Charlie has introduced his girlfriend to the book Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury, which is an obvious influence on the Dead Zone with all the strange things happening at a carnival in the fall. And th this book 
the dead zone screams fall to me uh, for all the mm. stuff that happened at the beginning of the book. And then it's just, Halloween. Yeah. And then the something wicked this way comes. I think the fact that the characters in that are worried about losing years of their lives. At one point, the bad guys like literally ripping out pages of a book and saying like, that's another year of your life gone. Um, and, and you know, Johnny loses your, and just a spooky carnival, which that carnival at the beginning is pretty spooky. So, um, something wicked this way comes. Nice. I thought this was pretty funny. Not being a sports fan myself, I still got a, a giggle out of Chuck's, one of Chuck's letters to Johnny, where he says, the coach here says that soccer is football for smart people and football is football for assholes. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Seems right. I, I don't know. <laughs> when Johnny is trying to get entrance into the town hall where he's going to shoot Stilson, he uses as a cover story the fact that he's on assignment from Yankee Magazine. And Yankee Magazine, if you remember, is where King published Do the Dead Sing and also Uncle Otto's Truck, which we covered in a bonus episode not too long ago. Indeed, we did. During that moment, Johnny was, he kept kicking himself for not buying and putting film in his camera for his his disguise what difference would it have made it's not like he could he was going to go and develop the the pictures right. so that he could reference anything i guess he was he was afraid he was going to get caught and like oh crazy guy with the empty camera i also think it was just an opportunity to introduce the character that was going to be stilson's downfall yeah which worked nicely yes very, very nicely done. I wanted to draw attention to a possible connection to Christine, mm. a subsequent book that King would write with the name Moochie, because it seems that one of Stilson's thugs is, is named Moochie. My final fun stuff for The Dead Zone is that in one of Johnny's letters, he's trying to determine how he should deal with Stilson. And he says, if he were in a novel... I suppose I would turn private detective myself and get the goods on him. But the sad fact is that I wouldn't know where to begin. Johnny is, in fact, in a novel. And instead of turning private detective, he just decides to turn assassin, which <laughs> I, <laughs> I guess is better. I don't know. Well, he kind of does accumulate all this evidence. Yeah. Right? But it's evidence to support his potentially wacko theory that this is a, a future threat to all humanity. Right. And then that's further complicated by the fact that he's going to die in a month or two in all probability. So he's like, eh, it might take a while to gather all this evidence. The FBI was doing it and look, they got themselves killed. So mm -hmm. I think that was the bigger part of the risk. Yeah, I think so. So my final fun stuff is uh, it seems that there's a, a, a public office position in this town called Overseer of the Poor. <laughs> And it must really suck to be the overseer of the poor because your office as the overseer of the poor is between two restrooms. <laughs> and the reason why I know this is that King lists the room names in what I assume is the order in which they exist in the hallway, yep. right? There is first the town manager, then the town selectman then tax assessor, then men's room, then overseer of the poor, and then ladies. So if you're the overseer of the poor, you're surrounded by shit. 
Yep. There's flushes coming from the left and flushes coming from the right all day long. I don't know if that's an elected position, if you're appointed to it. Or punished, or punished into it. Yes. <laughs> serve, a, serve a sentence instead of a term. You got to sit in between these two shitters. All right. Well, let's get into our final thoughts on the book. We'll start with some reviews. Uh, these are contemporaneous reviews of the publication of The Dead Zone, so 1979-ish. Booklist, not happy. King has lost much of his scare quotient. His latest novel suffers from tired blood. Wah, wah. Suspense is not built up as dexterously as in previous King novels. Here, the reader will become precognitive too and foresee each outcome. I don't know if that's fair. I do think that King wrapped it up in a somewhat original way by having Stilson not be assassinated and instead is shamed in front of everyone. So, yeah, I didn't expect to have Johnny basically die of his own pre-existing diseases and illnesses coupled with a, uh, a fall from a balcony. I, I, I thought that he was, you know, it would have been anything else. And like you said, couple that with a, uh, the Stilson living past the end of this book. That's, a, that's an unexpected turn as well. And I really have to take exception with Bookless' uh, tired blood comment. Screw you, book list. This is <laughs> this is a an original story with great characters, and there's nothing tired about this. Oh, sorry that King's third or fourth book it isn't all about I don't know dead people and post apocalyptic nightmare scenarios. It's about a different thing. He's allowed to write what he, what he writes about. Wow, coming out hot. Sure, that booklist reviewers long dead, <laughs> but you're going after him. All right, well, screw you, booklist. Well, you're not going to be very happy with Kirkus either here, because Kirkus said here he's taken on a political suspense plot formula that others have done far better, giving it just the merest trappings of deviltry. And then he goes on this Kirkus reviewer to say Johnny is a faceless hero, and never has King's banal, pulpy writing been so noticeable. And it's once through the typewriter blather and carelessness. <laughs> I'll acknowledge that I did not find as many poetically beautiful lines in this book as I have in many of his other works. So maybe this isn't the highest caliber, uh, like of just writing craftsmanship that King's uh, you know put out. But the story's great. Yeah, that review ends with the King byline will ensure a sizable turnout. The word will soon get around that the author of Carrie has this time churned out a ho-hum dud. Oof. On the other hand, the New York Times, and I can link to this review so you can read the whole thing. It's a little bit long, but it's by a pretty well-known reviewer, says, if you could jump into the time machine and go back to 1932, would you kill Hitler? I mean, I caught myself actually furrowing my brow over the question as if its premise were perfectly real, and I believed in Johnny Smith. I believe in him because I wanted to believe in him, of course. Because the fun of a certain kind of fiction is asking what if, and then playing with the possibilities. But I believed in him most of all because Stephen King makes it easy and fun, and above all, frightening to believe in Johnny Smith. Sounds pretty good. Yeah, and I think this review captures something that the other ones didn't. Kirk says Johnny is a faceless hero. I think to some extent he's supposed to be a little bit of an everyman. His name is John Smith. It absolutely is. 
this reviewer gets like it's frightening to be Johnny Smith. Like even though he's this everyman, he knows so much that it it's scary. I do also love the fact that the fun of a certain kind of fiction is asking what if and then playing with the possibilities because this is something that King will revisit obviously in 112263. Like that is that whole book is basically what if, what if, what if. That's the premise of all good science fiction too. Yeah. What if everything was exactly the way it is as as the world works, except for this one thing, yep. and take it from there? Great. That's what King did here. What if somebody could see into the future and finds out that this person's going to cause the end of the world? What would you do? Yep. Yeah. So I will also link to two Washington Post pieces. One is a contemporary interview with King that I thought was pretty good. It sort of gets into... The idea that this guy's sort of being introduced to like a national audience. Yeah, this is when he was really getting famous. Yeah, like not for the first time, but like this is sort of like, hey, this is a fourth book. This guy's not just some flash in the pan. Uh, Let's take a deeper look at him. So that's a good interview. And then also the Washington Post review, which unlike the person who said that the Dead Zone was written once through a typewriter and then published, uh, the Washington Post review says his success is hard earned. He does not overplay the psychic oddities that are the chief attraction and the major drawback of his work, and he immerses his basic improbabilities in a mixture of character, locale, and incident, rich enough to attract many who ordinarily do not care to read about minds that can see ghosts, perceive the future, or set a town on fire. It is not a book that will please everyone, but those who like it will probably like it a lot. Here, here. That is a good segue into our final thoughts, Jay. This is a book that will not please everyone, but those who like it will probably like it a lot. What did you think, Jay? I am one of those people who like it a lot. In fact, that's exactly what I wrote in my (laughs) notes. I like the book a lot. Word for word quote by Jay. I think the ending was really good. Maybe could have been a little tighter if I want to find any criticism here. I mean, this isn't a perfect book, but I had a lot of fun reading it. No point did I get in any way bored or annoyed or frustrated. I felt many of those things from time to time <laughs> with other other books by King. I think that the ending kind of zigzagged a little too much. I think King could have tightened that up by just maybe taking out the, the court records mm-hmm. and maybe just distill that down to two letters, a letter to his father and a letter to Sarah. And let those two letters complement each other and tell the whole story in a more succinct way. I think it might have been a bit more emotionally powerful. I like this book a lot. I think I mentioned that I read this just a little over a year ago. Uh-huh. Liked it so much. I'm like, Jay, we gotta do this on the podcast. And a year later, we 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 did it. I do think that this is a little bit unusual in the subject matter for early King, right? After a lot of straight up horror. We get vampire book, haunted house book, and uh, post-apocalyptic book, and then sort of this curveball, which is a romance story with a little bit of psychic stuff on the edge that becomes a political thriller. I also thought the structure was unique, and probably if King were going to write this again, he wouldn't write it like this. It did not surprise me out of all the books that King has written that this is one that became an ongoing TV series, because it the character of Johnny Smith sort of fits itself well into a mystery of the week type of deal. Hey, here's a guy who can touch you and 
figure out something about you and then try to have to solve that problem. I never saw the TV show, but I sort of assume that that's how it works. And yet you could have this sort of ongoing thread about the rise and fall of Greg Stilson. I liked it a lot. I think it's a good quick read. I think it's an interesting read. And if it's not prescient, it at least shows that some of the issues we think about today, King was thinking about back in the 70s as well. Absolutely. I think that these are universal and eternal things to be worried about and cautious about. And I don't know if that's what inspired the story for King. It's like, what would the worst case scenario be for our, our, our political future? I'll write a story about that and then a character who tries to stop it. Yep. Okay. So uh, on a scale of one to four and a half years in a coma, what would you give the dead zone? Wait, which is better? <laughs> <laughs> Good point. I'm going to say fewer years in the coma are better. So that means the lower the number, the better. I'll, I'll give this uh, I'll give this like a, a one and a half years in a coma. Yeah, I think I think that that's probably where I would fall to. This isn't a top five King book, but it's in the top half of his books for sure. Yeah. Plus, after one and a half years in the coma, maybe your girl hasn't left you, your body hasn't completely atrophied, and you're much more likely to resume a normal life. You yeah. Know? Yeah. You could get your teaching career back. Right. All right. Well, let's go our final Other Worlds Than These about Christopher Walken, star of the movie The Dead Zone. What you got, Jay? I just wanted everybody to uh, take a look at one of my favorite Christopher Walken movies, Suicide Kings. And I'll just give the briefest of plot summaries. It's about a bunch of ultimately dumbass young guys <laughs> who decide to kidnap mafia boss and hold him for ransom. Most of the movie takes place in a, a single room, and they're all just sort of hanging out with Christopher Walken for the duration of the movie, which makes for some great stuff. It's just like Christopher Walken monologue after Christopher Walken monologue. And he gets to play this really tough guy in a sort of unusual tough guy role. Mm. It works very well. So check it out. I have not seen that movie and I will be checking it out. I think that it's time that we end this with really what made us want to do this in the first place. And that is the fact that <laughs> Christopher Walken is a seven-time host of Saturday Night Live. I think he lives in the 30 Rock building. Is that correct? <laughs> you could be right. <laughs> He's one of the few people who has, he had his own DVD of like the best of Christopher Walken. One of the few non-cast members who had a, a best <laughs> of DVD of Saturday Night Live. And that's because of such classic skits as The Continental, in which he plays a vaguely European... Uh, <laughs> seducer of 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 women yeah, he's like a human pepe le pew yeah let's just say that the continental has not aged well it would probably not <laughs> no. not fly today and it was a recurring character yes. like mo almost every time he's been on snl he has done it a continental skit yes an early favorite is a dead zone parody called ed glosser trivial psychic i'm sure you remember that one and you you, you need to watch that after we do our movie if you have not the classic more cowbell skit there's nothing more to say. More cowbell. I need yeah. more cowbell. I need more cowbell. I was looking at you with that puzzled look because you skipped over Colonel Angus. Well. Sean, never skip Colonel Angus. It's the most important thing. <laughs> you should start with Colonel Angus. You got to start with Colonel Angus before you go anywhere else. Somehow I missed what 
you pointed out to me, Jay, uh, I had never seen the skit, The Walken Family Reunion. Uh, yeah, that is a fantastic one. And I've watched it like three times since you've told me about it, <laughs> as everyone gets to do their Christopher Walken impressions. Yeah, most of them terrible. Yeah, I was going to say, I think I do a better Christopher Walken impression than some of those guys. The thing is, Christopher Walken's doing a bad Christopher Walken in that one. <laughs> Now that you mentioned it, the best part of Christopher Walken being on Saturday Night Live is that it seems like he showed up like five minutes before the skit started. Yeah. And half the time, I don't know if he understands the jokes, and he's definitely reading everything off the cue card, almost as if he's seeing it for the first time. And it just adds another layer to all these skits that is just fantastic. As he's, you can see him looking in the middle distance, his eyes moving left to right, left to right, reading things off the card. I don't know this for sure, but I feel it's true in my heart. Every single time Christopher Walken has been on Saturday Night Live, it's been because they called him 10 minutes before to fill in for another cancellation. Could be. And, and he's like, oh yeah, I live three blocks away. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm there. So of course he hasn't seen jokes. And then I'm just going to end on what is my wife and I's favorite Christopher Walken skit, and that is the Centaur job interview in which Christopher Walken plays the head of a hospital interviewing a centaur for a doctor position, and uh, it's great stuff. Uh, He asks a lot of legitimate questions. (laughs) He does. If you see a horse, are you attracted to it? No, I, I'm not attracted to horses. But like, if if the horse was like behind a bush and you could only see the tail end of the horse, <laughs> would you be attracted to it until you found out it was only a horse? <laughs> uh, uh, how do you use the bathroom? How do you wipe yourself? Can you reach back there? It's great stuff. Christopher Walken is a national treasure, and we should always remember that. And I'm glad we got to spend our other worlds and these talking about him. Absolutely. I will admit that through the entire time I was reading The Dead Zone, I always pictured Christopher Walken as Johnny Smith. Oh, yeah. And I was trying to do the Christopher Walken voice in my head when I was (laughs) reading his lines. So it made the book that much more entertaining. Yes, I think the movie is going to be entertaining for that reason as well. Yep. Well, that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Ducks How It Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. I I can't do it the whole time. Links to all of our social media are available in the show notes. Check out our merch at store.twoguystothedarktowercame.com. And if you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover Carrie Part 1. Carrie? Carrie. Are they all going to laugh at you, Sean? (laughs) They're all going to laugh at you. They're all going to laugh at you. Yeah, this is going to be the final book of the 1970s Stephen King that we, this is the only one we haven't read yet. And it's the first one. We probably should have started there, huh? Well, I mean, we are technically a Dark Tower podcast. Fair enough. But all right. Well, I'm looking forward to revisiting Carrie. As am I. All right. Well, for Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening.
laugh at you. They're laughing at you right now. The laughing at you is happening, you stupid little girl. <laughs> yeah, you took it too far. <laughs> <laughs>